For most of its history, the United States has stood as a beacon of hope and freedom to the world. A place of safety, a place of equal opportunity, and a place where anyone could come and begin a new life. As the world has been thrown into chaos time and time again, our country has been there to support the world and to stand strongly and boldly alone. Needless to say, there have been times when we have been weakened and brought to our knees. From the Civil War, the Great Depression, the bombing of Pearl Harbor, and countless natural disasters and other crises that have at times shook the very foundations of our republic. However, unlike many countries or empires throughout history that have collapsed due to one or several of these crises, we have always prevailed. We banded together as neighbors and citizens to push through, to fight, and to rebuild. It didn't matter our political, religious, or personal views and grudges. We loved our country and principles, and we were willing to band together to preserve those principles that we held so dear. And most importantly, we chose not only to remember these hard times, but to learn from them. Today, I want to focus on one of those events that shook our country to its core, and then the end brought us all together. For those that were alive, you probably remember every detail of this day, from where you were, what you were doing, and what went through your head as this all unfolded. If you were too young or weren't born yet, however, I've discovered that even though you know of the day, you may not know any or little of the details. You may not think it is important to remember this day, and you may also think that there isn't anything you can learn from it. But I promise you that there is. And if you reflect on this day and other difficult times in our history as well, it may be enough to unify us in a way that could save us in the end. It's a difficult story, but one that is important to hear. With that, I, BJ Dooley, welcome you to another episode of Dust Off the Shelf, stories of history and everyday life as we explore the events of September 11th, 2001. Our story begins at 6 in the morning on Tuesday, September 11th, 2001. To most in New York City, it's just another Tuesday. Many people are probably just starting their day by getting dressed for work, hopping into the shower, making a morning cup of joe, and getting into their car, a taxi, or the subway. And as the sun began to rise, the rays of light began to illuminate the city skyline, showing off the architectural wonders of our modern world. Standing out among the towering metal giants as usual was the World Trade Center. Opened in 1973 after nearly a decade of construction, the North and South Towers, or Twin Towers as they were called, of the World Trade Center stood over 1,200 feet tall, with the South Tower being the second tallest building in the world with a height of 1,310 feet. These towers housed thousands of employees and also thousands of tourists on a daily basis. And to most were an iconic symbol of Manhattan and the Big Apple in general. I assume that many thought that these towers were safe and secure, especially considering that these towers had survived everything from robberies to even a bombing in February of 1993. No matter what was going on through the heads of those employees, tourists, and citizens of New York in general as they began this Tuesday, they were all oblivious to the perils that were beginning to unfold a few hundred miles to the north. 
200 miles to the north at Liberty Airport in Boston, Massachusetts, air travel was beginning to pick up, with many travelers beginning to arrive. Between 6.20 and 6.45 were a few of these presumed travelers. Muhammad Ara, Abdulazi Alomari, the Algante brothers, Marwan Al-Zai, and three more men to most probably looked like normal Middle Easterns. And besides a few of them being stopped at security for possessing a few knives, they'd been cleared and were considered, considered not to be a threat. The only thing that could have been out of the blue was a phone call between Ada and Al-Sayi, where both men confirmed that their plans were a go. At 7.23, Al-Sayi and a few of his colleagues went through gate C-19 to board United Airlines Flight 175. A few minutes later, at 7.35, Ada and a few of his colleagues went through gate B-32 to board American Airlines Flight 11. I doubt any one of those on the flight foresaw what was coming or even thought that they were in danger. To most, it was a normal flight, and their thoughts were focused on their final destinations and the plans that they had after they landed. I can imagine all fears that may have existed vanished as both flights took off with little or no difficulty. With Flight 11 taking off at 7.59 and Flight 175 taking off at 8.15 after being delayed for 15 minutes. At 8.13, contact was made with the pilots of Flight 11, where they stated that everything was fine as they were approaching their cruising altitude. And with that, all appeared to be normal. But oh, how much can change in the fraction of a second? As the next two minutes of Flight 11 were about to set in stone the upcoming events. At 8.14, Muhammad Ada and his men sprang into action as they stabbed a flight attendant and sent the plane into chaos as they sprayed mace all over the business class area. At 8.15, they had managed to force their way into the cockpit, subduing the pilots and asserting their control over the plane. As the passengers of Flight 11 began to realize what was happening, many tried to alert authorities of these events. One of the calls that made it through was that of Betty Ahn, one of the flight attendants on the plane. At 8.19, her call made it through, where she stated to American Airlines that she believed that the flight had been hijacked. American Airline employees then began to try and track down the flight to confirm this alert. But at 8.21, the transponder of Flight 11 was turned off, simultaneously confirming that something was wrong and making it difficult to accurately track the progress of the flight. Nevertheless, American Airlines tried to the best of their abilities to track down this rogue plane. At 8.24, a message by Ada was received stating that they were returning to the airport, causing the airline to alert other airports and airlines of this hijacking, that they needed help tracking down the plane. At 8.29, Flight 11, which was originally traveling west, makes a sharp turn to the south, where at 8.33 it crossed paths with Flight 175. And the pilots of 175 made contact with Boston to alert them that Flight 11 was traveling 10 miles to their south. This brief moment of hope was crushed two minutes later when, at 8.35, it became evident that Flight 11 was descending along the Hudson River towards New York. The Boston airport decided then to request help of the military, and by 8.41, they were in battle positions, ready to intercept Flight 11. At the same time, the last contact was made with Flight 175. And once again, 
the next minute changed the course of the seemingly normal flight. At 8.42, Al-Sayi and his fellow terrorists finished their takeover of this flight, where, like Flight 11, they forced their way into the cockpit, subdued the pilots, and took over the airplane. The next four minutes shift our story back to the Big Apple, where the usual morning business continued to unfold, and the last two hours had produced a beautiful, clear, blue sky day. This was, however, the brief calm before the storm, the return to a normal Tuesday. But the wall, which had been cracking for hours, now was about to explode into chaos and absolute hell. At 8.46, Flight 11 crashes into the center of the North Tower, between the 93rd and 99th floor. Hundreds are instantly killed between the passengers on the plane and the employees on these floors. And hundreds more are trapped above the impact zone due to the staircases and elevators being destroyed in the impact. At 8.48, within minutes, every news station devotes all broadcasting to the disaster. And emergency responders have either arrived or are rushing to the North Tower to help with evacuations and the injured. Everyone was shocked by this event, and it appeared that there was nothing, it was nothing more than an accident, to the point that at 8.55, the employees of the South Tower were told to return to the de their desks and not to worry about evacuation. Little did they know that four minutes prior, the final steps of another disaster had taken place, with Flight 175 beginning to change course, turning north over New Jersey towards New York. At 8.56, hundreds of miles to the south in Florida, President George W. Bush arrived at an elementary school to boost his educational agenda by reading some books to a class of children. He had been alerted of the impact of Flight 11 shortly after arriving at the school. But like those in New York and around the country, he presumed it to be a tragic accident, something that was important to address, but not at the moment. With that, he began to listen and read to the students. Meanwhile, over New Jersey, at 8.58, Flight 175 began its final descent into New York. While at the scene of the towers, reality had begun to set in. Authorities began to realize just how severe the impact had been, and there was a possibility that things could begin to worsen. With these fears beginning to rise, they decided that it was best for the employees of the towers to leave, and at 9.02, evacuations of both towers were issued. If you were alive at the time, you probably remember the next minute very vividly. By now, you were probably watching the news, listening to the radio, or had been alerted to what had happened in New York. You were probably saddened by what you saw. And what happened next probably shook you to your core. For at 9.03, Flight 175 crashed into the side of the South Tower, hitting between floors 77 and 85. In that moment... With another fiery explosion, it became obvious that this was no accident. This was a planned attack, or to most, an act of terrorism. NORAD was immediately notified of the second impact, who then delivered the message to the president. At 9.05, Bush's chief of staff alerts the president of the news by whispering into his ear, a second plane hit the second tower. America is under attack. Choosing not to frighten the children in front of him, he decides to finish the event. 
in the live broadcast of this event, you can see the confusion and fear in the face of the president, an image that alerted all just to how severe the initial impact of this disaster was. New York City now tries its best to control the chaos that had sprung out of control. By 9.06, the FAA begins to halt all air travel in the New York area. And by 9.21, the entirety of Manhattan is on complete lockdown, with every path in and out of the city closed. It was around this time that the country began to realize that more attacks could not only happen, but were possible. This brought around a first in the entire history of air travel, where at 9.26, all flights are canceled, and all airborne planes are either grounded or ordered to land. As this historic act begins to take shape, two flights begin to take the entrance of the authorities after contact is lost with the pilots. For around the same time that flights 11 and 175 have been hijacked, American Airlines Flight 77 and United Airlines Flight 93 have been hijacked by terrorists affiliated with Mohammed Atta. But instead of targeting, targeting sites in New York, they were tasked with targeting sites in our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Much like the passengers of Flight 11, the passengers of 77 and 93 try their best to alert the world as they discover that the planes have been taken over. At 928, Leroy Homer, a passenger on Flight 93, manages to get a call out to the authorities. And with that, there's now confirmation that the tragedy that has stricken the nation is only going to get worse. Oblivious to the other hijackings, President Bush gives his first response to the attacks from Florida at 929, stating that he will be heading back to Washington to further address these attacks after he has received more information. Little did he know of the approaching threat to the nation's capital. For as the president finished his remarks at 932, Flight 77 begins to descend into the capital in a spiral fashion. As if they had a feeling of the coming calamity, Secret Service evacuates President, Vice President Dick Cheney from the White House at 935. Minutes later, at 937, on the other side of the city, Flight 77 crashes into the side of the Pentagon, instantly killing the 64 passengers aboard along with the 125 Pentagon employees. Realizing the threat that the other rogue flight could pose, all focuses then shifted into the flight, into finding flight 93. This search only increases as at 9.52, a call is intercepted from a known associate of the infamous terrorist leader, Osama bin Laden, confirming the possible site of the last target, the White House. As news begins to reach the passengers of Flight 93 about what had transpired around the country, they began to realize that they needed to do something to stop the terrorist that had taken over their plane from reaching their final target. Eventually, a few brave men decide to act, and at 9.57, they rush the cockpit and take back the plane. Shifting back to New York, we arrive at another moment that became seared into the minds of all witnesses and those watching on television. After nearly an hour of burning, the steel in the South Tower had weakened significantly. And finally, at 9.59, the South Tower comes crashing down, showering the streets below in steel and a cloud of dust. Chaos ensues as people run away from the collapsing building. 
and any footage you watch from that moment looks apocalyptic as dust clouds turns the day and the night. Meanwhile, over, over rural Pennsylvania, as the men who rushed the cockpit of Flight 93 gain ground, the terrorists flying the plane decide to fight back, sending the, the plane into a downward spiral. Finally, at 10.03, it comes crashing down in a field, killing the 40 passengers aboard. Though this might have ended in tragedy, the bravery of the passengers aboard most likely saved the lives of hundreds more as that plane never reached its target. As the dust cloud settles from the collapse of the South Tower in New York, all eyes turn towards the still standing North Tower, knowing that it's only a matter of time before the weakening metal of the tower gives. Finally, at 1028, the North Tower comes crashing down, sending another cloud of dust billowing into the air. When the dust finally clears, rescue efforts are immediately put into action to try and save any survivors that could be trapped under the, under the rubble. Though it seemed unlikely that anyone could have survived such a disaster, by 7 o'clock that evening, in a true miracle, over 20 people have been rescued from the rubble, with a few more found in the coming hours and the last survivor rescued at noon the following day. In the end, however, the cons outweighed the pros with a total of 2,753 people dead, the Pentagon damaged, and of course, the once mighty twin towers of the World Trade Center reduced to a pile of ash and steel. The morale of the people of this country have been crushed, and many were uncertain of the future. President Bush, however, knew that it was important to bring us together during this time, and at 8.30, he gives a statement to the nation to help unify us through this hardship. A great people have been moved to defend a great nation. Terrorist attacks can shake the foundations of our biggest buildings, but they cannot touch the foundation of America. These acts shattered steel, but they cannot dent the steel of American resolve. America was targeted for attack because we're the brightest beacon for freedom and opportunity in the world. And no one will keep that light from shining. Today, our nation saw evil the very worst of human nature. And we responded with the best of America. And with daring of our rescue workers, with the caring for strangers and neighbors who came to give blood and help in any way they could. This is the day when all Americans from every walk of life unite in our resolve for justice and peace. America has stood down enemies before, and we will do so this time. None of us will ever forget this day. Yet, we go forward to defend freedom and all that is good and just in our world. As stated in the beginning, when tragedy has struck in our country, we always banded together as citizens to help those in need and to push through. This was no exception. Everyone banded together to comfort those who had lost loved ones or needed help. Those that could helped New York to rebuild, and many expressed a growing desire to defend our freedoms. Sure, many of those that helped had different political 
religious and personal beliefs that those that had, than those that had suffered. But that didn't matter. In the end, they were our fellow brothers and sisters or citizens of this great land. There were many things that brought us together during that time, from a flag flown at ground zero of the disaster to a piece of steel in the shape of a cross that many saw as a sign of God's hand in the recovery. But overall, the thing that brought us together was our love for freedom, love for this country, and the desire of good people to help in any way possible. It may seem unlikely in today's climate that many would be willing to help those of different beliefs. We've become so polarized and divided that many don't even associate with those of different beliefs than theirs. This may seem insignificant, but this loss is what I believe may cause our destruction if we aren't careful. If we are hit by another attack or a crippling disaster, and if we let our refusal to help those of differentiating beliefs Morale will plummet, and the principles that we hold so dear will fall. However, there is a way we can overcome this. When disaster strikes, and it certainly will, put aside your own opinion and beliefs and help those in need to the best of your ability. If this is a struggle to you, try and reach out to someone you disagree with and have a conversation with them. I bet you'll find that even they agree with some of the things you do and that overall they are good people just like you who need your help.